11 through 14, hear now God's Word. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And thus far the reading of God's Word and all God's people said. Reformed doctrine is centered around the marvelous grace of God. And nothing is more marvelous about the grace of God than our having been made right with God or having been justified. And this was because of Christ alone. Everything that is needed for our salvation has been completely provided. Provided by Jesus Christ. He is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. He is the only mediator. To add to or take away from him or his work is to pervert the gospel. It is to be cheated. It is to be robbed. And in this world we live in a high crime zone where thieves are everywhere. You know, polls can tell us a lot about ourselves. They can also move us in unwanted directions. One recent poll cited by James Montgomery Boyce revealed that 76% of evangelicals believe that man is basically good in nature. 86% believe that the gospel is primarily about God helping us to help ourselves. This is an old problem that has required the church to do what the Apostle Paul charged the young pastor Timothy at Ephesus to do. He told him that he was to guard the deposit that had been given him, and that deposit was the gospel. It was the Word of God. And that in guard, also in guarding that, part of his task was to make sure that word and that gospel was passed on intact to faithful men who in turn would teach others. Paul was astonished at how quickly believers were drifting from the gospel of grace. In Galatians 1, 6-9, he says, I marvel. I'm amazed, I'm stunned that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you other than what we have preached to you, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. Literally, we could say, let him go to hell. 
As we have said before, so I now say again, if anyone preaches another gospel to you other than what we other than what you have received, let him be accursed. Much of the preaching today is meant, missing any mention of sin or hell or judgment or the wrath of God. And by all means, never commit the faux pas of mentioning the law of God. But I want to suggest to you that if these things are missing, then why in the world would we need to preach the cross or grace or redemption or atonement or propitiation or justification by faith? For many, church has become a place that is primarily focused on helping people feel good about themselves. But there is a big difference between glorying in Christ and glorying in yourself. The church is not a self-help seminar or a therapy session. Feeling good is a byproduct of the work of Christ and Christ alone. The message and the meaning of the cross, the Bible tells us, is a stumbling block and an offense to many. But without the cross, there is no Christianity. Christ and Him crucified is everything or it is nothing. It's that stark. Peter wrote of the work of Christ saying, Who Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes we were healed. Martin Luther, commenting on this text, said, Therefore this text, He who bore our sins, must be understood particularly thoroughly as the foundation upon which stands the whole of the New Testament and the Gospel, as that which alone distinguishes us and our religion from all other religions, whoever believes this article of faith, that Jesus bore our sins on the cross, is secure against all errors, and the Holy Spirit is necessarily with Him. In the cross of Christ, the first thing that attracts us is its beauty and its simplicity. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Acts 16.31 Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Beautiful, simple. Everyone can have access to this. Nevertheless, this doctrine, Christ alone, the cross of Christ, is also deep and profound. We can always dig deeper. The depths of meaning of the cross cannot be fully comprehended. Someone described this theology as a pool in which a child can wade, as well as an ocean in which an elephant can swim. The whole Bible including the Old Testament, is about Christ. Jesus said in Luke 24, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, 
he expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. From Genesis 3.15, where we have the first promise of a Savior immediately after the fall and the curse is pronounced, we're told that God is going to send, send a Redeemer. One who would crush the head of the serpent. To God's promise of a son to Abraham, the one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the law, all the ceremonies, all the sacrifices were tutors to lead us to Christ. The prophets all pointed to Christ. Psalm 22 especially predicts the death and the crucifixion. And many of the other psalms, of course, do similar things. Zechariah speaks of a future generation that will look on and they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him. And then our Old Testament closes with these words, The Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing on His wings. And then Peter, reflecting back on what we just were talking about, all the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, he says, Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, that is the Old Testament prophets, was indicating when He testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed to the Old Testament prophets, it was revealed not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you <clears throat> through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels desire a look into. And so in order for us to understand the necessity of the work of Christ and His cross, we must first consider the seriousness of sin. Anselm said that if anyone imagines that God can simply forgive us, that person has not yet considered what a heavy weight sin is. He went on to say it would not have been right for the restoration of human nature to be left undone, and it could not have been done unless man paid what was owing to God for sin. But the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both man and God. Thus it was necessary for God to take manhood into His unity of His person so that He who, who in His own nature ought to pay and could not should be in a person who could. The life of this man was so sublime, so precious, that it can suffice to pay what is owing for the sins of the whole world and infinitely more. Sin is an infinite offense against a holy God. It strikes at His perfect character. Any plan to save man must first satisfy God. 
Again, Luther puts his finger on it, since all of us, born in sin and God's enemies, have earned nothing but eternal wrath and hell, so that everything we are and can do is damned, and there is no help or way of getting out of this predicament, therefore another man had to step into our place, namely Jesus Christ, God and man, and had to render satisfaction and make payment for sin through His suffering and death. So let me go back to our opening text. And let's look at this. Hebrews 10. I want to read it again. 11-14. through 14. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, referring to Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, and from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now remember, sin is the cause of every problem. Your sins and other people's sins, the sins of our forefathers and mothers, all the problems. Thus, the removal of sin is the answer to every problem. And since Christ alone can remove our sins, then Christ alone is the answer to every problem. Our salvation begins then by us being right with God, coming back into a right relationship with Him. Sin separates us from God, hides His face from us, Jesus removes that which separates us from Him. In the Old Covenant, when God speaks about forgiveness of sins, He is referring to the precondition for access to God. What did the high priest have to do every year? Well, first he had to remove the impediment to his own approach to God by way of a sacrifice. He was a sinner, the priest himself. And then he had to remove the impediment for everybody else's approach to God by way of a sacrifice because they were all unclean. They couldn't approach God if they did not have a sacrifice for sins. But now in Christ, that shadow, that Old Testament shadow that was there to, as a tutor to lead us to Christ has been replaced by the substance which is Christ alone. The whole world, in view of Christ's work, is now ceremonially clean. The whole universe has been sprinkled by the blood of Christ, and our hearts are sprinkled by the blood of Christ and purified by faith, so that anybody, anywhere, can have access to God with that one sacrifice through faith. In the Old Covenant, you had myriad requirements that came down in their climax to one priest entering one place, one day, each year, and that was a very complex ritual. The high priest was the busiest man on the planet on the Day of the Atonement. In Leviticus 10, 1-6, we read where some men tried to approach God their way. They got sloppy, presumptuous. 
Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. That's a pretty profound event. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Then Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the son of Uzziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. Again, referring to Nadab and Abihu, who have just died. And he said, Carry them out before the camp, before the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not uncover your heads, nor tear your clothes, lest you die. And wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. In other words, don't show any signs of mourning over Nadab and Abihu. They got what they deserved. Or you also will die because God will be angry with everybody. And so God killed these guys for an unauthorized approach. And if you cry about it, God's going to kill you too. Now that's the approach to God as governed in the Old Testament regulations. And that was the law that was violated. And when you get to Leviticus 16, 1-2, which is the law governing the Day of Atonement, this is what you find at the beginning of that chapter. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. So this is how Aaron was to enter the sanctuary area and then follows the elaborate procedures that govern the approach to God. This is what the writer to the Hebrews is focusing on, the laws governing the approach to God. It was simple. Aaron had to offer something for his sins before he could approach And then he had to sacrifice something for the community so that their unintentional sins didn't disqualify them from access throughout the year. So remember, unintentional sins defile you as well as the intentional ones. You know about some of your sins, right? If we bowed our heads right now and said, I want you to confess your sins, you could think of several. Maybe a long list. You think when you got done, there would still be some that you had committed that you forgot about or 
Maybe didn't even realize they were sins because you're ignorant. They're still sins. And so there was a sacrifice offered once a year for those sorts of things so that you could still approach God and not worry about those sins that you didn't know about. I think that's what 1 John 1.9 is saying when it says, um, if we confess our sins, very particular, He is faithful and just to forgive us of those particular sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He takes care of the leftovers. And thus the whole section of Hebrews chapter 8 through 10, indeed the whole letter is fairly simple. It's really not that big a deal if you just read John 4, 19 through 20, where Jesus says essentially the same thing to the woman at the well in Samaria. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. We're all trying to get to the same place, right? Worship God in different ways. We approach God over here. This is the place you must use to approach God to get access to Him. But you Jews claim that the place where you can gain access to God is through worship in Jerusalem. And here's what Jesus said to her. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship uh, what we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That is, in the light of Christ's work, we worship. That is, we approach God in spirit, recognizing that the Spirit of God is the temple in truth and not a type or a shadow. We worship God in spirit as opposed to in a physical location. And we worship Him in truth, remembering the true tabernacle as opposed to the temporary one that was in the Old Testament. That's what it means. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to go to Samaria. We don't have to go to New York City. Wherever we are, we can worship God in spirit because God is a spirit. We have universal access. Every Christian around the world has been given access to God through Jesus Christ alone, and they worship God in the fullness of Christ. And this is why Paul says in Ephesians 2 that through Him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by one spirit. That's what it's all about. That's why we read in 2 Corinthians 6.16, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will dwell in them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is the hope. This is the promise. God has come and is with us today. He is our temple, and we are in Him, and we are His temples, and He is in us. And again, this is why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 3, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. Which temple you are? 
This is why the Day of Atonement was the predicate and the precondition for the Feast of Tabernacles. The sacrifice had to be offered to make way for God and man to dwell together in peace. And the writer of Hebrews is simply saying that this has happened. So guess what we're about to do? Because of the sacrifice of Christ, we're about to come and celebrate a feast. We're welcome to come sit down with God and to share a meal and to have access and fellowship, communion. Jesus Christ alone, by the offering of Himself, brought His own blood, not into a temple that you could see on earth, but to the temple that was the true temple, the actual temple, the tabernacle in heaven, and by the offering of Himself, this new world offering was brought about, it brought about a new world order. Access to God is not restricted to any earthly location, and it's not encumbered with any ritual, ritual prerequisites. All the shadows of the Old Testament have now been taken up in the light that is Jesus Christ alone. So in Hebrews, for example, uh, some of the early Christians who had been Jews were missing some of that old ritual. They kind of wanted to go back to that. And what does he tell them? You can't go back to the animal sacrifices. Why would you do that? It's like saying, I've, I've graduated college, but I want to go back to kindergarten. No. If Jesus hasn't taken away your sins then there is no more sacrifice for sins. There's nothing that can... If Jesus can't do it, nothing can do it. This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews has spent ten chapters telling us. You must have faith in Jesus Christ alone. And you don't have to have an elaborate ritual that detracts. It's a backwards move. Worship God in spirit and in truth. So again, at the heart of the doctrines, the doctrines of grace from the Reformation, the second slogan, the second thing that encapsulates those doctrines was Christ alone. We don't add to, we don't take away from. He is the sum and substance of our faith. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we acknowledge that you alone are the initiator and the worker of our salvation. You alone have enabled us to have access to you through our eternal high priest and our only mediator, Jesus Christ. We cannot save ourselves, nor can we assist you in saving us. We are the blessed objects of your mercy and grace. Clearly, Christ demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. While we were enemies, you reconciled us to yourself through your Son. And so, the Lord is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer, our God and our strength in whom we will trust, our shield and the horn of our salvation. You are our stronghold. Amen. It is very clear that the superior person and work of Jesus Christ 
has opened up our approach and access to God. The whole story of redemption just emerges like a gorgeous flower. And it's there for us to behold and smell and to enjoy and to praise the Lord for. The new world offering has been offered. A new world order is now here. Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Brothers and sisters, Jesus intercedes for all of us. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good to you in your sight, all things have been uh, delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Amen. Almighty God, who in former times led our fathers from a wilderness to a wealthy place and did set our feet in a large room, we humbly ask you to give your grace to us, their, to us, their children, that we may always prove ourselves to be a people mindful of your favor and glad to do your will. Bless our land with sound doctrine, righteous laws, godly people. Defend our liberties and preserve our unity. Save us from violence and discord and confusion, from pride and arrogance and from every evil way. Take the nations of the world, men and women from every race and tongue, and form us into one nation under God. Endue us with the spirit of wisdom, with those whom we entrust in your name with the authority to govern, that there may be peace at home and that we may keep our place among the nations of the earth. Lord, our nation has forgotten your law and often calls evil good and good evil. Send out your word to conquer the nations and to return sanity and peace and true kindness to the world. Send us out to do the same, to represent Jesus Christ at our house in this community. Help us to show the love of Christ. We pray now that you would bless our feast and our rest and our fellowship. And we ask all of this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. You and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood, and has made us kings and priests to His God and Father, To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.